Hello, everyone, and welcome to Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast. My name is Jake Watroba, and on today's episode, we talk to David Goss of Extra Time Radio to discuss all things MLS. Listeners, send in your feedback and thoughts on today's episode at Uncle Sam's Soccer Pod on Twitter. We would also love it if you could rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get to today's episode. Thanks for listening to Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast, keeping you up to date with the latest in American soccer. And don't forget to subscribe. Alrighty, Justin, what is going on? Uh, just getting by like always. Um, doing online classes. Just happy tomorrow is Friday. Hey, you got you got your classes got canceled tonight, so you really can't complain all that much. I can't, but this is one of my easier classes that I enjoy. <laughs> Whereas I had to get up for my early morning class today, but. You're right. I'll take I'll take the victory where I can get it. That's right. That's right. Take the victory where you can get it. Listeners, follow us on Twitter at Unc Sam Soccer Pod, at Justin Sosa ninety nine, and at Jake Watroba. If you haven't heard breaking news uh, as of uh, earlier this afternoon, we are recording this Thursday night. The LA Galaxy have fired manager Guillermo Barroscoloto uh, after they fall to the Portland Timbers five to two. Uh, Justin, quickly here. We're going to get to this uh, in a little bit here. we got David Goss around the corner here. You will hear more about the uh, GBS firing. What were your overall thoughts on uh, Galaxy opting to, uh, you know, kind of go in a different direction with uh, three games left in the season? Yeah, I mean, I think you, me, and Steven were all on the same page as far as GBS had to go at some point. I I mean, I guess firing him now gives them a little bit more time to think about who they want to replace him or like looking for somebody to replace them. I don't know. I feel like firing him now and firing him at the end of the season would have really made no difference. They were out of the playoffs regardless. So um, I'm just, you know, kind of glad that saga's over. And hopefully this historic giant of this league will find somebody to put them remotely close to the pedestal that they use because the league is going to be a lot better once they are back on that level and they make it more competitive. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, Scalotto had a uh, final record with the Galaxy. 21 wins, 26 losses, and 6 draws. Now, listeners, uh, we're not going to get in this discussion because this is very controversial. But uh, th- the season the Galaxy are having today, uh, this season, uh, this is the reason why you'll never see promotion and relegation ever in MLS. Could you imagine the, arguably the, the biggest club in the uh, in the league's history, going down and playing in the USL Championship or MLS Two or whatever we're going to call it, uh, I think no, you can't. That, that's never going to happen. And that's, I mean, this is this is exactly why. In fear of your you, the, your the face of your league, you, you know, your marquee franchise being awful, uh, I don't think MLS would want to see 
that. But listeners, we're going to talk more about Guillermo Barroscoloto and MLS around the corner here with David Goss. Joining us now, you've probably heard his voice in Extra Time Radio on a few New York Red Bulls 2 broadcasts, maybe a Seton Hall soccer game broadcast here and there. Uh, David Goss. Goss, how you doing, bud? I very rarely get the Seton Hall thing in, so that was very exciting for me to you just put that in my intro. So now I'm pumped up. Now I'm ready to go. Well, yeah. I mean, like I go there, so I have to any, – any type of ties to it, it's got to be thrown in. Yeah. Big East soccer is good soccer. It didn't happen this year. It's sad. But, like, every time I've done seeing all games, I get to Super Draft. I'm like, that guy is good. I know that guy is good. And that's because Big East soccer is quality soccer. Yeah, the Nealis brothers from uh, Georgetown, one at Red Bulls, one at Miami. Good good, uh, good, good uh, conference to look out for in college. Underrated conference, in my opinion, too. Uh, 100%. But now UConn's back in, so it'll be rated again. Yeah, by, by Matt Doyle, especially. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, I got now. I have I have to answer. I ask a question that's completely off script now, David, because you mentioned the super draft. And this is I know it's not even draft time, but we've had like this argument many times. Me and Justin are actually proponents of the draft. We've had a former co-host who said he was totally against it. What are your takes on it? Are you a big draft guy? You think it should go away? Like what? What are your feelings on it? So I think college soccer still has a place in the U.S. soccer circle. So it, the, the players coming through, it cannot be ignored. But I do see being someone who covers Red Bulls 2 so closely and is now even friendly with players who came out of college, went to Red Bulls 2 and came up. I see the value in a player and a team being the right fit. And the problem with the draft is, okay, someone randomly at the 17th pick doesn't know who they want and they just take someone. Let's call him Richie Larea. He's in the wrong place. And then it takes him three years to find his career. That's unfortunate. And so I think college soccer still has value, but maybe the way the draft is done is incorrect in that you should really bring guys in for trial and have the opportunity to sign them because everyone's going to USL at this point anyway. So I don't mind the events. I don't mind the fanfare. I don't mind supporting college soccer and young players in that way. But I do think there's flaws in that. It's not like the NBA where everyone's going to be a starter the next year. So why not give guys a better opportunity to find the right fit for them and go to a place that really values them? Yeah, Jake, how are you going to question the draft when the next starting striker for the men's national team is Daryl DK? Man, he came out of I don't, I don't question it. You and I, have, we, we've talked about it <laughs> numerous times. I, cause we, because because the the argument, what was it, the union last year or was it two years ago? They sold off all their picks to Oh, I have, a, I have a friend. No, a friend of mine is a union fan, and I ripped into him about it. I was like, the like, listen, I understand trusting your own youth system and stuff, but I was like, like that is so disrespectful of the unions just trade away all their picks, especially when guys like, like um, Jack Elliott, who's like not necessarily a starter for them, but like a really good rotational piece, is like part of their team, and Andre Blake. I was like, wow, that bold move. But we are off topic or <laughs> off script with this now. I know. It's, uh, it's no, prime. Why, would, it's, you it's, say, why it's, would you say this? For MLS teams, there's like 100 ways to be good. You just have to pick something and be really good at it. If you're going to heavily scout college soccer and bring those guys in, you could be good. The problem is most MLS teams don't pay attention, randomly draft someone, and then they kind of throw a wrench in a player's career. Yeah. Yep. Thankfully, that didn't happen to uh, St. Clair at Minnesota. Yeah. He got a shot at goalkeeper. 
I told Jake he'd come good. Now he's nice. He's doing all right, right? <laughs> I'm a I'm a I'm a DSC fan. Yeah, he's he's right. he's solid. He should be the starting. <laughs> they, there's no need for Tyler Miller. He can he can go away. Uh, <laughs> anyway, this isn't. Uh, it's October 29th. It's recording this. As you know, this is prime MLS Super Draft uh, time. Just kidding. Uh, obviously, but David, let's talk actually about some like actual MLS news. Let's talk about some of the big news that happened earlier today. Uh, the Galaxy fire Guillermo Barroscoloto after less than two seasons with the club. Uh, in your opinion, why did he fail uh, with the Galaxy? It seemed like his best attributes are mainly man management, keeping pressure off a group, things like that. But when it came to soccer... He didn't give any ideas to the team that he coached. And if you talk to people from Argentina, the job at Boca is so difficult. It's kind of hard to tell what he was and wasn't good at because the talent is there and the pressure is immense. Turned out what he was good at was keeping the pressure off the players and keeping them focused and comfortable. He didn't really put them into positions to win. The talent was just so good that they were able to win and go to Copa Libertadores final and they won two regular season titles. But there was question marks around his tactics there. He comes to MLS, and you think, okay, the Galaxy have enough talent to kind of fit that, and that just wasn't the case. The roster didn't make sense. And I've been saying all year, and I think it's hard to look away now over the last two years from what we've seen when you look at what Anthony Hudson said in the media last year and then the way his team performed after he left and what Oscar Pereira has done in Orlando. And then there's a bunch of other examples coaches in MLS there's no such thing as your roster not being good enough to compete you may not be able to win MLS Cup but you should always compete and the Galaxy have not done that and that falls to GBS now I know people in the Galaxy system in the Galaxy front office who said to me when Zlatan was there well he can't play the soccer he wants to because Zlatan won't press and he won't initiate the press and so he can't press at all so he's playing off and playing Zlatan skills and when he leaves will see the team that GBS wants them to be. I don't know if 2020 threw a huge wrench in that, and he just was never able to get them on the right page, but we never saw that this year. We never saw an idea of how he wanted to win games and fell completely to the talent, mainly Christian Pavone, to figure it out themselves. And when the talent wasn't good enough by itself, he had nothing to fall back on. And at this point, it seems like the team's given up on him. Yeah, I feel like you'd at least see some skeleton or shadow of like that uh system that he'd try to implement and it just wasn't there for the galaxy and as, as far as like what you said about him being more of a guy to take the pressure off his players i would say he he did that at la but it felt like it backfired almost because if you watch certain games where they get blown out by like portland twice in a matter of a month or three weeks um you can just see in like the players faces and their body language like ah all right, like it's happening again kind of thing. And like they, they have a little bite here and there at like the beginning of a comeback maybe, but it's just, it always inevitably seems like they're just kind of settling that they've lost this game and that it's kind of just time to keep it pushing. As a team, yeah, they've given up, which is unacceptable. It's unacceptable for the Galaxy. It's unacceptable for any professional sports team, quite honestly. Right. Uh, and I think that's why it happened now because they're out of the playoffs, right? Nothing's going to happen in the next three or four games, that's going to change having him let go. But I just think yesterday or two nights ago, whatever it was, that performance was so unacceptable um, for the Galaxy that they just had to make the move now. Yeah. Um, and as far as other breaking news goes within the league, um, we found out earlier today or tonight uh, that the league is kind of switching to a points per game method in terms of 
figuring out who fits into playoffs positions. Um, as it stands right now, what I remember looking at, the Rapids kind of jump Vancouver and the Fire jump Miami uh, for playoff spots in the West and East, respectively. Um, do you think that was the right decision? And or do you feel like the Rapids maybe should have just been disqualified from MLS Cup in, in the same way that like Nashville and Dallas were for MLS's back? It's tough to say. We have this debate today, and the Rapids obviously didn't handle things correctly, and therefore they forced all these games to be canceled. But at the same time, how do you punish the Seattle Sounders in a supporter shield race for that? Because it's not their fault if they play less games. How do you punish the other teams around them who need those points for all those things? I think it's really complicated. I didn't think there was a clean answer. Apparently, I didn't realize this Don Garber said earlier this summer that this was a possibility coming out of MLS's back tournament. Um, and I don't really think anyone keyed in on that, but I think mm -hmm. in the end, it's not going to matter. I think in the end, the teams that have them have more points are going to be the same teams that are in the playoffs on points per game as well. I we're talking about it now because Chicago has the most games to play because they had their season thrown off because of COVID-19 coming out of the MLS back tournament, the way it got moved around, but they have an extra game that no one else in the East is going to play. So I actually think in the end, it's going to level out and it's not going to matter. Uh, but right now it's frustrating for those teams. Now, now David, I want to talk about Nashville a little bit as they clinched Eastern conference playoff spot Wednesday night. Uh, a lot of pundits, uh, even one or two on this show had them pegged as bottom feeders, uh, not only in the East, but probably MLS as a whole. Uh, what do you make of their success and uh, where should we rank them in terms of expansion teams uh, throughout MLS history? So I will say a clip was played at me today of me saying they'll be better than Miami uh, in February, which I don't even remember. Do, do you want to so <laughs> let me, let me tell you something last year. So what Nashville did this year, I thought FC Cincinnati was going to do last year. And I went, and paraded around the show. We had, I think we had Stasekel on, and he was like, no, there's no way in hell FC Cincinnati is going to be good. And literally, the same exact yeah. show, Stasekel gets off the phone with us, and I'm like, there's no, I'm like, no, I'm totally buying into FC Cincinnati. They will be a playoff team. And we all saw FC Cincinnati was terrible. So I, I you know, I just want to let you know that, you know, we all make mistakes. We all have we all have bad takes. Well, I didn't make a mistake. I was apparently right, and I just didn't even know that I was right. But I will blame you for the rest of your life for saying FC Cincinnati would be good ever, <laughs> because that is an unacceptable thing to say. But the difference between the two is center backs. And Dax McCarty was a great addition. Annabelle Godoy, obviously, as well. You have that experience in there. But the difference for these those two teams, because they're great examples of each other, because you have Alan Cruz and Randall Leal, who are different types of players, but similar quality at that level that they brought in. You had some DPs as well for both sides, but Walker Zimmerman and Dave Romney and Daniel Lovitz, the experience they brought in on the back line and the quality they have there allows them to play the way they want to play. And as the society last year, they were too slow. They made too many individual errors and there was too many mistakes to try and recover from. For Nashville, they're never really behind. So they can kind of set their tempo in each game. And I think they've gotten more creative and more comfortable as the season's gone along. They also add Alex Muel, which has been a good addition for them. Yonder Cadiz and now Handwala Buana. So like they're adding the pieces up front as they go along, but they built that back, that back first. And it's tough to say because there are no fans. 
because one of the things I think of when I think of expansion teams is when an expansion team is good, the energy in the building and the energy in that market is so new that it's something that's like kind of infectious. And you think about when you think of Atlanta and Seattle, and I say even Philly and LAFC, and it's hard to really gauge that with Nashville because we're not seeing that. And uh, I talked to uh, someone in Nashville a week or two ago, and they were like, it's hard to really tell that the team's imprinted on the city because people aren't a part of it. And so the playoff run they thought was going to be very big in making this, you know, more of a factor in the city. But I think that affects the way we judge them as an expansion team because they're not really on the same barometer. Now I will say going forward, because when you look at the teams coming in, in Charlotte, in Sacramento, in St. Louis, they're not the biggest market teams and they are probably going to try and follow this model. And so the key is year one, be competitive, and then you can add those DPs and the high-priced attacking players going forward. Yeah, I would just like to clear my name real quick and just say I wasn't on the show when these claims were made about Nashville being bad. I knew the second they signed Dax McCarty, they were going to be awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, I totally agree just kind of with their their setup. I, I forgot what I was reading. Um, it was definitely something off of MLS's website, and it was just looking at how – Miami was building their team and how Nashville were building their team. And Miami were obviously trying to go for a bit of like South American flair and just kind of be like that Atlanta LAFC um, type of model. Whereas Nashville was going for more like MLS veterans and just like a solid core. And then kind of surrounding that with players who, who, like you said, have talent and have ability to play at this level and play well at this level, but not necessarily like a Carlos Vela or Joseph Martinez. Um, And then like when you watch Nashville, even against, FC Dallas just like in those first three games kind of when the season restarted like what stood out to me was just how energized and how well Dax McCarty and Anibal Godoy played together at the base of that midfield it just seemed like having the two of them there gave everybody else so much more confidence and reassurance going forward that it was just like and and then having Walker Zimmerman and David Romney right behind them it's like it's just a solid uh core to kind of just be able to rely on defensively and know that if we sit in the shape and wait a little bit, we can just hit on the counter or, you know, we can hold the ball a little bit and maybe try and find one of those gaps. Um, yeah. So I've been really impressed with Nashville too. It's, it's been a solid season. For me. So, but one of the things I would say is, could they do that with fans in the stadium? Like would people get frustrated if they weren't playing more attacking offensively and would they lose that shape? Cause Gary Smith said to us last year, no, I'm going to play aggressive soccer, and it's not how he's ever played. It's not how he played in USL. It's not how he won in MLS in Colorado. And he was like, no, I'm going to play that way, which is something everyone says to fans. There are no fans. So I wonder how much that factored in. Uh, for Miami, by the way, I would say I think they got screwed the most by what's happened this year because I think they thought with our market, our city, what we want, if we just have open spots, we'll get good players. And it was kind of a waiting game. And that sort of went away because people just couldn't travel and uh, they didn't want to come in and the season wasn't going normal and the European seasons went late and all that stuff. I think Miami had a bit of a plan and the plan would have worked better if it was a normal year and guys became available and then said, I, I think Matweedy is a good example. They probably could have had four or five guys like that. And in the end, they only got one. Yeah, I, I think, I think this this year kind of helps Nashville with like that identity that you were kind of talking about in terms of, yeah, Gary Smith wanted to quote unquote play aggressive soccer, but then we played more conservative soccer and now that's kind of who they are. So 
next year when fans come into the stadium, they're not expecting aggressive soccer. They know what they're getting in terms of a Gary Smith team. Um, but do you think like the effects of this year will kind of carry over into the next season for Miami? Or do you think next year can kind of, can hopefully go as they hope this year would go? It's hard to say because they've kind of spent their money. Iguain's in for another year. And then they've got the two young Argentines and Pizarro is at such a high number. I don't think you can buy him off a GP deal. So they're kind of locked in now. Uh, I guess the hope would be if you have a full off season to work with LGP and Figal and Reyes, can you put together a stronger back line to support those guys? And if you can do that, does that give Wichwiti more license to get forward, get into the attack and create opportunities? They don't have, to my knowledge, a ton of wiggle room now coming up. So it seems like they're going to they're, they're going to be behind the eight ball uh, for the quality of team they want to be. Now, David, every season it seems like teams uh, who pick up steam uh, going into the playoffs they, they usually perform the best. Uh, the Rebels this year they have uh, they've picked up a little bit of steam here as of late after starting out uh, slowly uh, at, at the beginning of the season. Do you think this subtle momentum change and confidence boost is enough for them to cause a few upsets in the playoffs? So I don't think they're a team I'd want to play in the playoffs because of what you're talking about. And I think the biggest thing for me, and you guys can speak to it as well, but I think they're exciting and fun, or at least they're interesting to watch again. And they weren't that way for 12 months. And I think the Rebs game on Wednesday night, at halftime, they showed highlights of when they beat Chelsea with Tyler Adams and Sean Davis. They were interviewing him and all that stuff. And it was like, a, oh, wow, the Red Bulls used to do cool things and be fun. And there was energy. And that's all kind of gone away. And I think it started to come back. And you could see it in the players and the way they're playing. But they're not potent in front of goal. They don't create a ton of chances. And that worries me in a postseason run. They will go on the road, so they won't have to carry the bulk of play. It'll be other teams' responsibilities for the most part, to beat them, which I think fits into their game better. But I still don't see them as a team where you look at some other teams, you look at a Rebs who now are going to be seventh or eighth, and you think, wow, Bo or Buxa could carry them in a playoff game and they could hurt a team. The Red Bulls don't have that. And so they're not a traditional style sit and counter and be lethal and win. But if a Royer gets hot or if Kaku gets hot, one of those guys, then they have opportunities. I think with the energy and the way they're playing and with the nothing to, they have nothing to lose. I wouldn't want to bring, you know, welcome them into my stadium for a playoff game, but I would be surprised to see them make it past an Eastern conference semifinal. Do you think, um, I mean, I feel like he's talked about every week now, just because of how young he is and just, you know, the way he came onto the scene, but as far do as it, like, Clark, the and Clark question. Yeah. <laughs> as far as, as, as far as just like, uh, his role in this team next year, uh, you know, with his contract with Leipzig or whatever the clause is like him being a Leipzig player next May, when he turns 18, whatever the case may be, if we get a solid year, we being the Red Bulls, if they get a solid year out of him in 2021, do you think he can be that guy that maybe is the extra bit that kind of pushes them over tight games? Do you think he's just still a little too raw to even be considered for that position? I think it's interesting because I don't think he is a tech at his best. Um, I watched him all year in USL and he was uh, incredible. And he, when he left, he was fourth in the league in assists in his first year of professional soccer with a team that was pretty bare bones because they couldn't bring guys down 
from MLS, and he still played that well. But I don't think that's his best position, and he's come into MLS and scored goals on the wing. I still think he's an eight. He covers a ton of ground, super clean in his touch, very aggressive, very quick in his play, but doesn't really like to break players down. He doesn't really like to have a set defense in front of him and be the guy responsible to break it down. He wants to be more in the flow of play. So I don't know if he's that guy that the Red Bulls have always been looking for, that Kaku's supposed to be, that Sasha question was, at his highest level. So I don't know where Red Bull plays him next year because they're getting some instruction from RB Leipzig of where they project him going forward. So I think there's a lot of questions of what he's going to do for the team and what his job can be. Um, I think in terms of quality, he can clearly play at the MLS level. The other thing I'd say is I think a lot's been made of the RB Leipzig signing and the way it works, but every young player who's on New York Red Bull is in the RB Leipzig system. There's a reason that's where Tyler Adams is. John Tolkien went over and trained with them before he even signed a homegrown deal. All of these guys are connected to that club. I don't think it's as big a thing as it was made. Um, but I think the issue with Caden Clark was he wasn't an academy player. And so they needed to appeal to him to come to New York. And so I think they mentioned, well, we'd love for you to be on RV Leipzig in the end. But I don't think that means that he won't play in New York for three more years or he won't go to Salzburg for or any of those things. It's just mm -hmm. a way that it was stated to him to be like, come here, we want you to be a factor. So then let me ask you, because I don't necessarily disagree with you that the 10 isn't his best position long-term, um, because I see not a lot of, but shades of Brendan Aronson in the, the way that he plays. Mm -hmm. And I feel like yeah. a lot of young American center mids are kind of in this mold where they have this ability to be like super good at pressing players and winning the ball back, but preferring to play a little bit deeper to where they can play through balls kind of to overlapping runs or runs in behind or kind of like you said being more involved in the run-up play rather be rather than being that go-to guy to break teams down um so i mean for so then for brendan aronson i mean do you do you feel a similar way that the 10 isn't necessarily his best spot that it's more of like an eight role so i do accept and this is kind of more above even what i know but uh, i think there's teams that don't play with the true 10 so you look at red bull let's just take it, RB Leipzig, and Sabitzer plays in that role when he's healthy. He's not a natural 10. I don't think anyone would say that, but he fits perfectly for what they do because he's quick off the, tra off the turnover and he creates that first opportunity and then he counter-presses really quickly high. I think Brendan Aronson can do those things and I think Caden Clark can do those things. So a lot of it comes down to the team and what role they're asked to do, but it's not that either any of them will do the things that Emil Forsberg does well, which are much more creative, you know, allowing the game to come to him and finding openings. I don't think those are the things they're best at. I agree with you on the general American thing. I mean, we roll out players and it feels like they all start as nines and tens and then end as left backs or right backs <laughs> and uh, defensive midfielders. And that's kind of the way it's always been. Um, but I, 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 I agree in that. I don't know that Brendan Aronson's going to be playing the way Kai Havertz plays mm -hmm. in the future. But I don't know that the game is really trending that way. So in general, I don't know that most teams are even looking for that anymore. Yeah, I think I think Liverpool is the greatest example of that. You see that they don't play with mm -hmm. a tradition, and it's more of like a false nine with Firmino, and then they have three workhorses in midfield. Um, which and, I mean, like I for teams. Say, go ahead, go ahead. I, I was just saying, Caden Clark and Ben Anderson, when the Oldham is a great comp for them of like 
does everything well, covers a ton of ground. As long as you're clean in your touch, you can connect play well enough that you can survive in whatever position. Yeah. Uh, David, two more here before we let you go. I want to shift gears into the national team as we're going to have a, a November camp uh, coming up here in a few days. Amazing. Uh, I know. Miracle. I know. I, I, it's like you see water now. You, we've been wandering through this COVID desert, if you will, and now we've <laughs> come upon water, which is, I guess, U.S. men's national team games. That's kind of a weird comparison to make, yeah. but we're going to go with it anyways, I guess, for the sake of this show. Uh of all the players being called into this camp, and obviously that's they're all going to be based in Europe. Hypothetically, if you could call up an MLS-based player or two, uh, who do you think deserves a look from manager Greg Berhalter? Can they be people who have already been called up? Who already have, have or player. maybe it could be a new player. I mean, you know, I'll, 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 I'll put one caveat: it can't be Jordan Morris. Oh, no, that's who I was going to say. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, to be fair, that is, that, that's the like, obvious one, right? That's an obvious pick. Like, we were texting about yeah. this before, that Jordan Morris was probably the starting right winger as of right now. He, but, yeah, aside from Jordan player. Morris, I, I would say. Playing, okay, he is playing so well, he has to be a starter. Uh, I'm a big fan of Aaron Herrera at RSL, at right back, and I know it's a deeper position for the U.S., but I think he played, he's such a good player both ways. And Greg Berhalter wants what he wants offensively, and the aggression from players, I think Herrera does that even better than Reggie Cannon. So if he can defend at the international level, which we don't know because we haven't seen it yet, I think he goes into that player pool even above some of the guys who currently in it are in it. And then at left back, I would say Sam Vines as well, and we haven't seen him play for a month now because of what's happened to Colorado and all those things. But I think over the course of the year, you've seen the things that we wanted to. Maybe he didn't take the leap, we expected where he turned himself into one of the best fullbacks. Part of that, I think, goes down to the way Colorado plays. But I think physically he can hang at the international level, and he's clean enough that he won't make mistakes. He won't lose you a game. And then you can start to see, can he build on his game to start to win you games? And I don't think we have that at left back. Anthony Robinson's the big one. Although if Sergio Dest can play left back for Barcelona, he can play left back for the U.S. But I don't know where his spot ends up, if he's a right back. Um, so I'd like to see those two guys uh, get an opportunity at the international level behind just the general players that I think we expect to get called in. Dave, you couldn't see this, but when you said Sam Vines' name, I did like a little fist pump because I am like <laughs> one of this kid's biggest fans. I, I love my, – my thing about fullbacks is that – and I mean, I guess this comes from me playing like club in high school. So, so – um, pristine club in high school soccer as like a right back um, and just preferring that my fullback be solid defensively before they, you know, join the attack or whatever the case may be. And I feel like Sam Vines in his progression started out as, as a pretty decent defender and, and develops his defensive skills in that sense. And then this season, I would say, I mean, from what I've seen from the Rapids, I obviously haven't watched every single game, but from the games I have watched, he's seemed like he's taken a step or two up in his offensive production and just like, his confidence and the way he goes about taking the ball forward and getting down the line. I forget which game I was watching, but at one point he did like a Ronaldo chop when he was running with the opposite fullback or the opposite winger. And I was like, Whoa, like where did this come from? <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, he, I think he deserves a look for sure. I would say the biggest comp for him is Justin Morrow. And it's a shame that Justin Morrow didn't get more call-ups and it was like a weird dark time in the national team, but guys like Sam Vines, 
should will always be top level starters at a minimum in MLS. And those mm-hmm. players should always get a look in the national team in positions that are whole. So like at the 10, no, right. Gio Reyna and Pulisic, whoever else is going to play in there. Like no one coming out of MLS to play at those spots, but at holes at weakness spots, though, that's where you can get opportunities for these guys. And I agree with you, Sam Bynes, he's not going to lose you that game. Uh, he's clearly learning and he's still young. And so he should get that look. And David, last question here before we let you go. We're going to go out with like a kind of a bang, I guess, if you will. A friend of the podcast, Joseph <laughs> Lowry, uh, he had a Twitter thread about two weeks ago essentially stating that uh, Josh Sargent was the forgotten man in Europe. Uh, do you have any concerns about him as it relates to the national team given the lack of talent at the center forward position? I don't. It's frustrating because his team barely plays soccer. And they don't play in any way like we want to see a team play. And so it's frustrating because I think he's learning a ton of good lessons of how to compete at that level, how valuable mistakes are, and how big the opportunities you get are because that team creates so few chances. But one of the things I love about Sargent that I saw the moment I saw him as a U-17 guy and then with the U-20s that same year is his willingness to open up outside of the center forward position and to beat guys outside or to drop in deep and play as a 10. I think he has the versatility that fits perfectly with what the U.S. will have because Pulisic likes to come inside and be goal dangerous. Jordan Morris is a forward. And then it depends who you play outside of that, if it's Reyna or um, Legette or whoever else as a 10, whatever it is. I think you have a bunch of guys where they can all swap positions and move. And I still see that with Josh Sargent because he's not playing center forward right now. So he's showing his ability to play out wide and still be dangerous and to track back and to help. And he's showing his ability to play underneath another forward because that's what Bremen's asking him to do a lot of times. And so I actually think it's showing his skill set to an extent and struggling at the Bundesliga level at his age is something we would have killed to have a forward doing 10 years ago. So we can't get ourselves too spoiled with the Mm -hmm. fact that now Americans play for every best team in the world and you can't have a super club unless there's an American on it all of a sudden. Um, But I'm not too worried about that. I'd also say, and this is to the original point, right, about super drafts, which I know is out of the blue, but we will always have Grand Zussies and Jeff Cameron. We will always have players that we don't see coming because our scouting network isn't perfect. So I think you're always going to have guys either get hot or come through at the center forward position. You need to have your mainstay like a Josie Altidore who can be that consistent guy when that player is not there. And then you'll have a Hurt Gomez pop up and Edson Buzzle have a few good years and become a part of the national team. A Charlie Davies come out of nowhere. I know those are all 10 years ago because it's been a tough run, but I still think those things will happen. So I still see from Josh Sargent, a player who's good enough to start at the national team level already and is still getting better. And then I still think the position has players who will come out of nowhere. I love Ricardo Pepe at Dallas. I think he's legitimate. Uh, And I still think you've got guys coming through who can be difference makers at that spot. Yeah. As far as like guys coming out of nowhere, I mean, uh, the scuff podcast, put out a tweet today, like just talking about all of the kind of forwards we have, just scattered around Europe. Um, Nico Giuicini in Liga was mentioned. Sebastian Soto, obviously. Um, and then just like guys that we know of, but are starting to do well now, like Haji Wright, Novakovic, Johansson. Um, and so the thing there's is, a, there's a guy, there's a guy on Reddit, Augustus Griff, 
who came out of NYCFC Academy, who's doing better things than Novakovic did at a younger age at Reading. But because of where we're at, where we're at now, where everyone plays at the first team, we're not even talking about them anymore. But I still think those guys could break through. Sorry, continue. Yeah, no, 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 no problem. I, I was just, it was just uh, funny because, like, I think a lot of people were kind of down on the fact that, like, a player from the second division in the Netherlands or the second division in France would, like, be considered above players like Johansson or a player like Sargent. Um, but, like, it felt as though a month or two ago when Werder Bremen were playing in that relegation playoff, we were all okay with saying, <laughs> yeah, like, Sargent doing really, really well in two Bundesliga is still fine. Like, I would still take a starting striker there. And I'm like, so why is there <laughs> – like, where's this double standard coming from for, like, the second division in France? Like, given the, the jump in quality in comparison to the first and second division in Germany – is about the same in France, you know, like that team, those teams that come up from the second division into the first division aren't necessarily like at a place where they can compete to stay up. Like they're constantly struggling to stay up. Um, so I don't think the quality per se is necessarily different in the teams that they're all playing for. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'd agree that there's just a bunch of forwards everywhere, old and young uh, that like we've forgotten about or that we don't know of yet um, that are probably going to pop out within the next year or two. Yeah, it's, it's weird because, you know, I talked to Greg Baralter a few weeks ago and he didn't mention Jeremy Abobasi when we talked about center forward depth. Mm-hmm. And it's like fair on one hand because he's got a bunch of names in his head and those are the ones he's interested in. And I think Jeremy Abobasi probably his national team career is going to hinge on his ability to play multiple positions well. And so he's a guy who you'll want to bring into a camp because he can fill in in different spots. But also the things he's doing are better than Juan Anagudela was doing in MLS. And he was a national team starter at a similar age. So it just shows you how much the pool has changed, which is super exciting. And hopefully it continues to get better. Yeah. And I mean, off your point about Sargent too, playing in these different positions, you know, whether it be a coaching decision or whatever, like Abobas, he's played off of the wings before too. Like he's played left wing, right wing or top um, as a striker. Um, so I definitely think Abobasi has that potential to kind of be that guy who can drift wide or drop deep. Um, maybe not to the level that Sargent might potentially be at someday, um, but he's definitely got the qualities to be a backup or to be a starter if Sargent's ever hurt. Um, I'm a I'm a big yeah. fan of Abobasi, so I'm kind of hoping he pulls through. I like left-footed strikers. I don't know what it is about them, but like uh, <laughs> their their technique always just seems better than like most right-footed strikers. Like they just always know how to hit the ball cleanly. Um, I know there's like screenshots and videos of the way Van Persie used to hit a ball. And it was just like, it, it, it's exactly how you would explain it to a kid when they're like first learning how to play soccer. Like you would kick the ball like this, but it's just at a professional level. Um, so yeah, I kind of hope he, he pulls through at the national team level. All right. Well, David, my friend, thank you so much for your time, your insight and your thoughts tonight. Tell our listeners where we can find you on Twitter, when and where we can find extra time radio and anything else you may want to plug away. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Empire, and then my last name, which is G-A-S-S. Play on the word gas, but it's pronounced gas, but it doesn't matter. Um, extra time comes on MLSsoccer.com. We have video on YouTube, and we are on your podcast platforms every Monday and Thursday. And I started a new podcast called A Football Pod, AFP. Uh, I host it with a guy up in Toronto who used to work for Toronto FC and then worked for EA doing FIFA stuff for a while. Uh, And we talk all soccer, which 
as much as I love MLS, I like talking about everything. Uh, so we get to get into South American soccer and European soccer, international, the women's game, everything like that. Uh, so if you're looking for another, I don't know why, but another soccer podcast in your life, that comes out on most Tuesdays as well. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. All righty. Well, we thank David Goss for his time. You can follow him on Twitter at Empire Goss. Find him on Extra Time Radio and subscribe to his podcast, a football podcast on listeners. Send in your feedback and thoughts on today's episode at Uncle Sam Soccer Pod. Give us your opinions and your thoughts on LA Galaxy firing Guillermo Barlos Scalotto with three games left in the 2020 season. I know for me personally, I, th- I don't know why they didn't do it before the, the, the Portland game. I don't know why you didn't do it following the loss at LA Galaxy. A little bit of a head-scratcher for me, Justin. I'm not sure where you fall on that. Uh, I know, like you said in the intro, probably wasn't going to make a difference, but maybe you get what, what's called the dead, cat, the dead cat bounce, which is when you drop a dead cat out a window, it hits the ground, it still bounces back up. So for me, personally, I would have fired him uh, before the disaster in Portland. But listeners, that is it for today's show. You can follow the show on Twitter at Pod. Follow my co-host, Justin, at JustinSosa99. You can follow myself at Jake Watroba. And follow Stephen Jodoran at Stephen Jodoran. For Justin, I'm Jake. We'll talk to you guys next time. Mm-hmm.